You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Places, everybody! Put on your game bags, that's it. All right, game sticks up. That's fine, boys, you've got it. Now, follow me. A one and a two and a... First you stick your bag, put it in the bag, bump, bump. Then you bend your back, put it in the sack, bump, bump. That's the way it's done. It's a lot of fun, bump, bump. Cutting papers, putting papers in the bag. Welcome to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation about the Disney animated canon in chronological order. This is our second foray into the deuterocanonical animation of the Walt Disney Animation Studios. Uh, we've reached the end of the 1950s, so we're going to pause and discuss six short films that came out in the 1950s. Uh, I'll just name them as we go, I think, so you don't have to listen to me <laughs> just listing things. But we'll start with uh, No Smoking's 1951, and we will wrap up with uh, Paul Bunyan's uh, from 1958. Uh, I'm Josh Altmanchofer, and with me, as always, is the legendary giant living in the land of 10,000 lakes, Michael Farmer. It's true. I guess I do have quite a bit in common with Paul Bunyan. I do eat, I I do eat an enormous amount of pancakes. <laughs> And th- th- were you raised by an entire town? Uh, basically. Well, you know, it takes a village. Yes. <laughs> it comes, comes, really comes through in that short. Uh, do, do we want to start with talking about when people would have, or when and where people would have seen these shorts originally? Do you know? I don't have any clue. Oh, Leonard Maltin on the, uh, on the DVD I have gives you the movies that a couple of them aired before. But most of them would have aired uh, before movies. They, they were still largely doing that in the 1950s. So you'd go to the you'd go to the movies and you'd see a number of short subjects before your film. By the 50s, that was starting to fade out, which I suspect is why Disney stopped making shorts uh, in the early 1960s. I think, and I can't I can't um, verify this, but I think Truth About Butter Goose may have originally aired on NBC Television. But I don't know in what context. The big cartoon database says it aired on NBC without giving any kind of further detail. Yes, I was wondering about that, about how many were originally television and how many were in front of theater audiences. So not that it really matters. It's just I feel like these are kind of lost unless you're a real, you know, I mean, they are all on YouTube, um, so they're not lost in that sense. But unless you're going looking for them or you're a real Disney aficionado like Michael and you own the DVDs, (laughs) then I don't know how often these get revisited. Yeah, well, and, and I, th- I would suspect that of the seven we're talking about, only Susie the Little Blue Coop is is widely known to people. And that's interesting because it's actually not on any of the DVDs I have. I don't know what made that them leave it off. It's also public domain. For some reason, they let Susie the Little Blue Coop go out of copyright, even though it's from 1952 or three. That is so crazy to me. Wow. I had no idea that that was the case. Yeah. So if you look, I think YouTube actually has four or five different videos of Susie the Little Blue Coop. Yeah. That, that is the one that I was familiar with. It, it must have aired as part of a, you know, a special or something when I was a kid in the, in the, in the 80s. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, um, I didn't know that one until I was an adult, but to be fair, I didn't know any of these other ones either. Yeah. So, yeah, if you haven't seen them, um, we encourage you to run out and I guess uh, I didn't list them, so you can't pause and go watch them before you start it. But anyway, um, as we talk about them, uh, 
I don't. I they're they're kind of unspoilable, I guess. So <laughs> yeah. you can go back and find them afterwards. No, none um, of none of them are really about plot. Yeah. None of them really rely on the element of surprise. Yeah, I would say overall, I really enjoyed these more than our 30s and 40s shorts. Um, I I mean, I liked the 30s and 40s shorts, and definitely uh, the the band concert with Mickey Mouse is still one of my all time favorites. Uh, but I think overall these are all a little higher quality. Yeah, and weirder, right? I mean, almost almost all of these are weird in various ways. That that is very true. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. Speaking of weird, at least weird to um, our our modern eyes, I guess. We'll start with Goofy's no smoking, which you, you I just can't even imagine anything like this being shown. Um, in our in our present in our present day, no. Um, and in in fact, this was this was um, edited at one point to have a different sort of ending where Goofy comes in and says that he really did quit smoking um, <laughs> because of uh, because of more modern sensibilities, I guess, about around cigarettes. But uh, basically, we follow um, <laughs> we start with this very interesting history of tobacco uh which we can come back to and then uh we we follow um goofy on he he's on a quest to quit smoking um and then decides not to quit because he's not a quitter and yeah that's that's the basic plot so. I, I will say this for the short i smoked for several years this really is kind of what quitting smoking feels like I think my favorite my favorite moment in terms of the verisimilitude of of quitting smoking is when he um he he just is up and decides to quit because I think he his his throat is sore and he you know his his entire office is covered in smoke and ash and uh, and he says I feel better already and then it's like two seconds before he starts wanting a cigarette that is uh, that is accurate yeah I, that was actually a really nice piece of animation because he kind of like he's kind of stretching and like you know popping his neck and stuff like he feels so good and it immediately like turns from the like i'm i'm popping my neck to like a twitch yeah <laughs> he's like twitching for it's it really I, yeah, I enjoyed that quite a bit i also enjoyed you, i also enjoyed the detail that he uh as soon as as soon as the alarm goes off in the morning he he lights a cigarette which is also i mean only a slight exaggeration for smokers i think or at least for well, me when i was a smoker michael this this uh i've i've not i've never smoked uh cigarettes um but the this this short really got me because uh, particularly at that part where it's talking about how the cigarette is the constant companion in leisure hours and oh that last puff before retiring and that first drag on a rising and I just went immediately like this is my smartphone <laughs> like, <laughs> that's funny <laughs> yeah I was I was I was convicted they should uh, they should re- they should rewrite the uh, the short yeah as yeah no no twitter (laughs) the the difference is you can't sleep with the cigarette underneath your pillow or i mean you could but it would probably end in disaster right but yeah you can definitely have your phone right there until the moment you fall asleep and then first thing in the morning it's it's bad it's really it's really bad so yeah uh thanks to the short i've been i've been i mean i was trying to pull back anyway but i really felt convicted watching this short you feel better already I do. I feel better already. Now I'm just uh, imagining you wandering around outside, not able to buy another cell phone, and waiting for some, for a window <laughs> washer to drop one. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's a little different in in that in that sense. But 
uh, yeah, so um, lots of great animation in this one before we get to, to some of those other details. Um, you mentioned already the when he quits, and then shortly after that, you get just his hands, and you have the kind of um, the... Uh, the only the, you're only seeing the hands animated and it's you know the one hand's going for the cigarette and the other hand is um, you know upset about it it's kind of that classic left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing or type thing but and, really and nice that too that. seems accurate because I mean so much of so much of cigarettes is this like unconscious ritual that you do and you you know you, you do it 20 times a day. Uh, and then when you try to quit smoking, you, your body does kind of do it automatically. Yeah. I, I still um, occasionally, and I haven't smoked a cigarette in 10 years, but uh, I still occasionally hold a, a pen to my mouth in, in the position of a cigarette. And that, you know, that I have not smoked for much longer than I smoked at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how our body just picks up those habits. The other really nice bit I felt was um, when he's at work and he's smoking and he's he's got I don't know how many cigarettes in his mouth maybe like twenty and he's you know he's putting one in on one end and they're just chugging along like a <laughs> like an assembly line around his mouth and uh, you know slowly you know I don't I don't know what it's called is the you know the cigarette gets shorter and shorter down towards the end it's just really nice like I mean because he's in the workplace and the, it's like the cigarettes are at work too you know like going along their assembly line I don't I just really enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought that was I thought that was pretty funny. Like everything else, it makes you think about um, what it must have been like to be a non-smoker in an era when 80, 90 percent of the population smoked. I guess you probably just didn't even notice it because that that's what you were used to. But I mean, I remember the days, and I'm sure you do too, of uh, smoking sections in restaurants, and and that seems really weird now. Like I don't I don't like to be next to somebody who's smoking on a patio or whatever. I, I, it's weird that we all put up with it in our restaurants for so long. Yeah, yeah. My, uh, it's one of the things that people generally notice when they come to visit in China. Oh, I have heard that. China's, yeah, China is not anywhere. I mean, China's probably where the U.S. was in the '50s, I guess. You know, as far as you know, smoking, and yeah. So it's one of the things that definitely all definitely gets commented on whenever we have a visitor here. So. I wonder when they they when it became uh, common knowledge that cigarettes caused cancer because that doesn't really come. I mean, maybe you don't want it to come up in a in a lighthearted cartoon short, but it, it doesn't. He doesn't quit smoking because he's afraid it's going to kill him. He quits smoking because his throat hurts and uh, he can't um, blow as hard as he used to. Yeah, yeah, he can't he can't blow out the match after he's lit the cigarette with it. Which is what happens when you smoke ten cigarettes at a time in a chain. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think I thought that was really interesting, and I think that's where maybe it 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 has those nice parallels to um, any other addiction. You know, like he's he's recognizing that this is not making him. You know, it's not satisfying him the way that he thinks that it will or that that it should. Um, so he wants a different sort of like he wants a freedom from it. Um, but then he gets he gets fr- and and that's where I think. This, there's a, a bit of brilliance in the when he decides he absolutely needs a cigarette and he's just frantic for one and he goes through a whole series of events where he's like just trying to get anything and he can't you know and you mentioned the you know he's waiting underneath a skyscraper for the window washer to drop a cigarette and he does but 
of course, by the time it, it gets to him, it's burnt out. You know, it's just ashes. Like, and just that that seeking satisfaction but not finding it, mm-hmm. um, I, f- I felt was really, really powerful. Very human. Yeah, very human. Very humanizing. Worth noting, this is this is one of the... There's a handful of shorts, mostly from the 50s, I think, where Goofy has a name, which is George Geef, which is kind of disorienting, I think. Yeah. Yeah, because he's supposed to be kind of an everyman in these. And I kind of wanted to ask you about that, because the, the so the Goofy shorts I'm most familiar with are the ones uh, where you've got that kind of false narration thing happening mm-hmm. that we talked about when uh, Goofy was the... Um, not well. He was the cowboy, but he was the cowboy taking on the role of whatever it was called. Um, and and you got that like the narrator saying one thing and the opposite is happening. Yeah, or uh, how to play baseball, which we talked about in our last shorts episode. Right, exactly. And I was wondering because this is after those, like, is the narration here? Is it is it kind of playing off of that? Do you think, or because it's pretty straight? Yeah, but. But you're also, I don't know, I, I think it's unclear, um, or it's like maybe purposely a little little nebulous about, you know, how how bad are cigarettes or or whatever, you know. It definitely it definitely splits that difference. Yeah, unclear enough, I guess, that you know when when people are becoming more sensitive to it, they have to add a, another ending on where he comes in and says, "No, I really did quit smoking now," you know. Um, so. I think it's worth noting, and I don't remember if we talked about this when we talked about how to play baseball or not, but those those uh, shirts with the narrator have a very practical purpose behind them, which is that Pinto Colvig, who voices Goofy, left the studio. And rather than try to recast him, which, I mean, obviously they did eventually, but he came back for the short, I think. But um, rather than try to recast him, they, they came up with this new way of doing Goofy shorts, which turns out to be... You know, those those goofy sports shorts are some of the funniest things of the animation era. Um, and now that I think Pinto Colvig is back, they, they kind of split the difference. They still have the narration, but it doesn't work the way it did before. And the narration's not as funny. Um, the, the, the humor comes... There's less of a contrast in the humor. Yeah. So maybe... Yeah, maybe it's just more of a practical thing than uh, something where you're... You know, they're... they're they're playing with that idea of the false narrator or whatever. Um, I think the short definitely would have been funnier if they'd kept with that, but maybe they were tired of it. I mean, they've been doing goofy shorts for 15 years at this point. That's true. They may have felt that that, that old way got kind of stale. I mean, we did not watch 20 goofy shorts in a row. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, um, I, I just felt at the end, uh, you finally get the... the the, what he finally gets is he gets a, a cigar from a banker. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and I just felt like there's a couple times where I feel like I'm going to be a little Danny Anderson on the show, but like, um, like there's there's like that economics piece, right? Like it's the economics of the um, who's actually getting rich off of of people being addicted to cigarettes, you know? And and so he's the one who finally kind of lets him back in, although he doesn't because then the the cigar explodes. Um, so it's a little of both, but this guy just carries a bunch of exploding cigars, <laughs> right? Just in case somebody <laughs> asks him for one, right? So, um, I wonder if yeah, they still it, make this. 
exploding cigars? Uh-huh. Is that a really a thing? Yeah, it was a it was a gag in the fifties. You see it in a lot of cartoons. Yeah, I've seen it a ton of times, but I didn't know it was an actual. Product. I don't. I don't think they blow up quite as much as they do in the cartoons. Like this, uh, this ruins George Geef's hat, for example. Yeah, <laughs> seems like that'd be a little. <laughs> it could be even more dangerous than actually uh, smoking. Yeah, yeah, I would think maybe it's a good way to uh, quit smoking. Like if they just uh, if they just put one exploding cigarette in every pack, and you didn't know which one it was. Chris, the why? Why would the why would the people making cigarettes want you to quit smoking? Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's the. I thought that was kind of a, maybe lightly touched upon there by having the banker give him the cigarette at the end or the cigar. But. Um. Yeah. One other gag that was in there that I just want to mention is the when he's he's at the. They're going through all the all the ways that a cigarette can can help you face <laughs> your life, including um, being you know in a on a firing range like to be executed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, while he's there, and you know he's got the blindfold on and he's smoking a cigarette, and there's a poster next to it that says "Good to the last puff." <laughs> I mean, that's thing. dark. <laughs> I mean, oh, I just thought that was really clever. It's a nice gag. <clears throat> You wonder if they had corporate sponsorship of the firing squads. Yeah. Sponsored by Lucky Strike. <laughs> did you catch the Lucky Strike joke? You you, you yeah. don't listen to as much Jack Benny as I do. Yeah, I still got the Lucky Strike. There's a Lucky Strike, and then there was oh yeah, in that same yeah, in that same one, there's another one for Philip Philip Morris. Oh no the... no yeah, so there's the one the Lucky Strikes, but also when he says uh, Columbus discovered not only that the world was round, but also that it was firm and fully packed. That's the that's the Lucky Strike slogan oh, from that yeah. era. So round, so firm, so fully packed, so free and easy on the draw. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I did miss that one. Yeah. Did you want to talk about that Columbus bit or just let it go? <laughs> I, you know, we've talked enough about racial insensitivity. <laughs> yeah. And I think all um, our listeners know that Columbus did not discover that the world was round or have any interest in that, that Aristotle knew the world was round. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, I, I, what I always tell my students when they trot out that one is that probably there are more people in 2018 who believe that the world is flat than in the Middle Ages. Yeah, I just um, yeah on the racial insensitivity. There's 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 a bunch in these shorts. I think um, there, I mean there's the there's the Native American stuff in this one. Uh, there's there's a little bit in the toot whistle plunk and bloom that we're gonna get to. Just a little. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's um, where's there's there's other Native Americans. Was it in uh, Paul Bunyan? Is there some too? I don't I remember, but there or, might be. Um, uh, maybe they. Maybe it was all only in this one. I don't, I don't remember now. There's quite a bit in this one. Yeah, and quite a bit yeah. into Whistle, Plunk, and Boom. Oh, maybe that's where I'm thinking of it. But anyway, yeah. I think in the past, Michael, I've you've been a little firmer on this. This is really wrong, and I've been, I think, a little more trying to be charitable. Um, I've I've a, just another like conviction on my side. I've been listening through uh, another podcast, um, which I, which I'll recommend here because I think it's really great. It's called um, Seeing White, and uh, it it just goes through the the history of race. And I feel like I was really convicted on it. Like things, yeah, these things are not okay. And the 
any charitableness that I showed to it. I just, I just want to be, I, I, I'd like to go back and talk to myself. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think you have to be charitable to the people who made it up to a point. Like, like I mean, like, like everybody else, they're stuck in their society, and it's very difficult to transcend social attitudes that you probably don't even have, uh, you don't even realize are offensive. Um, but there's no reason to be charitable to the actual presentation, I think, yeah. S- since the presentation is not a human being with a soul. Right. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, I'm still pro charity, but, um, yeah, I just, I think the, the way the system, the, the, the way the system exists, which is something that maybe we'll, we'll talk about more when we get to the story of Annie Bird, cause I think, I think there's some parallels there. Um, so yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll hold it till we get there, but Anyway, if anyone's ever listened to me and like, man, that Altman Schiffer guy needs to get together on race, I'm, I'm, I'm not there yet because I don't know that you ever do get all the way there because we're all, like you said, products of our, of our time and our culture. But, um, I do recommend that Seen White series. It's, it's, uh, it's from Seen on Radio is the name of the podcast. And then Seen White was their second season. And it's, it's really good and very, it's very eye opening for me. So I, I'll say this, Josh. I, um, I never thought you were defending people overly much. But you know, I'm, I've, yeah. I'm also don't have a great track rate to, uh, track rate talking about uh, race on these podcasts. So yeah. Well, yeah. are we ready to move on to a different kind Susie. of race, Susie the Little Blue Coop? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about Susie the Little Blue Coop. Um, so yeah, I think a common thread that we'll see through these um, is something to do with. Uh, just human nature and you know i mean you see it in no smoking um you know that our our desire for things that aren't always best for us and then i i will i think that'll be something that will just keep coming back is you know what's what's it mean to be a human <laughs> which is is appropriate for christian humanist network right yeah <laughs> yeah so in Susie the little blue coop you have a, a car uh that is you know we, we see the beginning um, she's she's a brand new car in the in the display area, and then um, we we basically tr- follow her through her her life as a vehicle. Um, she has a couple different owners, and then uh, at the end gets gets an overhaul and and is is great, but definitely has some low points along the way. <laughs> she becomes an alcoholic. Yeah, um, maybe a prostitute. I. <laughs> I couldn't follow the metaphor all the way, but she gets this citation, and I'm not exactly sure what that's supposed to represent. Right. So I wanted to talk about this um, because definitely it was hard not to read it in that sort of way of, um, you know, she's she gets stolen, and the implication is kind of on her, right? Mm-hmm. Like she's a stolen car, which... She's um, been spoiled, She's been spoiled, and there was a uh, Christian feminist, uh, maybe several, but there's there's one in particular that I remember listening to years and years ago, uh, where they were they had a they had a guest on who who wrote a book about this. Um, you may know the one I'm talking about, but um, this whole idea of of women being spoiled and um, you know the importance of women being pure and and all these sorts of things, and I, I, yeah, definitely there there was some there was some resonation there <laughs> i yeah. like watching this yeah um that was 
yeah, that was definitely uncomfortable. And so, yeah, for, I want to be sensitive to, you know, to people who have been negatively affected by, by that sort of attitude in, in the culture or in the church or, or whatever, you know, um, that this, <laughs> this short, um, does seem to, to, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to dismiss that reading basically is what I'm trying to say, because I can, I can see how that would really resonate with someone who, who kind of went through, through something like that. Yeah. And I, I will say, I think that reading shows up when you're overanalyzing it as we do, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I mean, that's, that's our shtick here. So. Right. So I wanted to go for that said, I wanted to go for a slightly different reading. Um, and and see what you thought about it. Um, but I, I did want to mention that one because it just seems a little too obvious to, to just pass over. I was wondering if there was more of like a, almost like a vocational metaphor going on here or like a, um, like an ultimate purpose sort of metaphor because um, all the vehicles in this are very connected to their work. Mm-hmm. Um, like you see the trolley, you see the milk cart, truck, um, you see uh, the limousine, the police car. Like, the police car is obviously a policeman um, and those sorts of things, right? And then there's some sort of um, – uh, there's something going on there, I think, with when – you know, what's what's a, a coupe, <laughs> a little blue coupe's kind of purpose, you know, is – to be flashy and to be fun and to be, you know, in the, in the movie, they make it out as like flirtatious. Um, but th- I think that is part of it. Like that is part of why people are attracted to those kind of vehicles, right? Is, is because the, the things that we own, we use as status symbols. Sure. Well, right? they're certainly not terribly practical, right? A coupe is a two door car. Right. Um, yeah. And so in reading it that way, when she's completely run down and and beat up and you know is stolen and all those sorts of things like she's not fulfilling the purpose of of what she's meant to be and then at the end you get this you know kind of redemption arc well it's, it's a definite redemption arc either way right but you get this redemption arc of her um being fixed up into a hot rod and then she's able to be what what she was meant to be again yeah i, I like that and i think it's it's interesting that that she's the the female car and the female car's purpose is to look good and be fun right but all with male drivers and that was the other thing that i want to talk about with like because there's this weird symbiotic relationship between um the the driver of the vehicle and the vehicle itself right because when Susie is drunk it's because she's owned by a drunk you know Mm -hmm. and when Susie's young and fun it's because she's owned by a young and fun guy. And then when Susie's like hitting middle age, it's because her young and fun driver is hitting middle age, you know? Yeah. That's in, like the, our car. I mean, and it's a very American idea anyway, right? That your car is an extension of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. There's some tight interweaving between with our relationship, not only with our cars, but just with the technology in general. You yeah. Know? And the, well, the uh, fact that the fact that this short begins with him falling in love with her, it, it, it's, yeah. it's not just symbiotic, it's romantic. And again, we're overanalyzing. This is a fun short about a car that is sad and becomes happy again. But, I mean, ultimately, I think it's 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 got a kind of consumerist undercurrent to it that, that uh, you know, he's he's been convinced to love this car essentially by 
by the, the society around him. I mean, 1952, 53, I'm trying to think of when um, planned obsolescence was invented. Planned obsolescence is the idea that you'll buy a piece of technology and then discard it a few years later. And, and it starts with automobiles because uh, they'll put out a new version of the car every year, which, I mean, seems normal to us, but wasn't always the case, right? I mean, that, that's something right. that's something with a history. And I think that history doesn't start until about 1955, which um, makes the shirt interesting to me, because if it was made five years later, she almost certainly would have been discarded for a newer model, as opposed mm-hmm. to, like, like, he gets rid of her because he has run her into the ground. I mean, it's not, he's not quite as cruel as he would have been under that other, under the planned obsolescence system. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, nobody would blame somebody for getting rid of a car that whose engine uh, sighed the way poor Susie sighed. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, she needs a complete overhaul, and he the the implication is he can't quite afford it. Yeah. Or he could afford it, but would rather put the money into to getting a new car. Yeah. It's not. This is a perfectly working, wonderful car, but there's a newer, fancier, shinier. Um. Yeah. Speaking of our addictions to technology and smartphones and stuff like that, right? Yeah, one well, and there's like a second wife metaphor in that planned upsell. I mean, it, it's no, it's no accident that one of the, one of the kind of crass cultural slangs for uh, divorcing your wife for a younger woman is uh, trading her in for this year's model. Yeah, or a, a newer model. But yeah. they don't do that in this short, and that's interesting because they're right on the cusp with that planned obsolescence uh, uh, idea in in marketing. And so I, I right. and I mean, you, you see that probably now most clearly with smartphones. So oh, for sure. You have your iPhone yeah. six or seven, and iPhone eight comes out, and you feel like a chump for still having the old one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. That that because yeah, I think it is. Um, there's, there's, you know, that's building off of something that was prior, right? Like that planned obsolescence thing, you know, um, because it, you know, uh, I, I learned about this with, with light bulbs. There's this, there's a light bulb that's been lit for, I don't know, over a hundred years now that's in some firehouse in, in California. And the, uh, the guy who, who built it, his whole deal was, I'm going to build light bulbs that last forever. Um, but then there was basically uh, all the other light bulb manufacturers were like, well, no, because then once you sell your, all your light bulbs, no one will ever have to buy a light bulb again. And so they they basically, uh, you know, used whatever uh, poor, you know, illegal business tactics <laughs> to, to put them out of business. Um, so that that we'd all have to keep replacing light bulbs all the time. That's interesting because um, he could have he could have gotten really rich off that sell one light bulb at five dollars to every person in America, and then just retire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, so yeah, this 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 sort of idea has been around for a long time, but that's interesting that it really comes into the into the forefront in, in around the 60s, and it's not quite there yet in the 1952, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I mean, the other interesting thing is your sympathy here is entirely with Susie. You don't really care about her owner, so you, you're, you're watching the, the piece of technology. That's where your emotions are. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So I do want to, um, 
yeah, back off the over analysis for a minute and just talk about how how nice this short is. It's got Sterling Holloway as the um, as the narrator, which is just always a joy to hear him. <laughs> I'm so thankful every time he shows up. Um, His bizarre voice. Yeah, <laughs> but it's yeah, it's such a such a sweet and bizarre voice. And then uh, the like you said, like there there is just a, a certain joy of just following this this character arc of this of this car um or not even a character arc what it what is it it's just i mean i want to keep using that word redemption like it's it's really a redemption story like she's she's completely um you know and she's in a junkyard just for you know her she's reached the end of everything and then this you know kid comes in and buys her and um all of a sudden she's got a new life and and you know sterling even says it like it's a miracle um i think there's a real there's a real gospel element within this that you can see yeah but on top of that it's just it's fun the the car looks uh is obviously um i think it's it's a it's it's an obvious tribute or designed by the same people who did uh pedro the the mail plane mm-hmm. right <laughs> looks exactly the same just minus the wings and, and it was it was the major influence on cars as well in right terms yeah of what they look like yeah and that's what i yeah that's where exactly where i was going so in fact you see an early version of doc hudson when she's in the parking lot there's a hudson that gets very angry at her for the terrible way she parks oh yeah totally yeah so yeah it's definitely it's definitely cars um what 60 years pre-cars but it's basically. it's weirder than cars because there is a human world and so it's not exactly cl- like are the people inside these cars yeah yeah which is something that we're going to get to um when we get to story of Annenberg as well so um some of that same idea comes up again yeah and the cars there also look a great deal like Susie. yeah yeah so it's just a really, it's a really charming little short, and you can you can watch it without all the over analysis. Well, so here's a fine. here's a philosophical question, and this is a pretty classic one, but uh, it really made me think. So where does Susie's soul lie? Because <laughs> because she's presented at the end as having been made new, right? Yeah. But it's yeah. her still, and yet he seems to have replaced her chassis and her engine and her tires. What yeah. part of her didn't he replace? It's a real uh, ship of Theseus um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sort of uh, question. Right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Except the ship of Theseus is gradual, so you replace you replace a plank here and a plank there. He seems to have done this all at once. Yeah, it's it's in the windshield. Yeah, maybe that's right. The the windows are an eyes to the soul, and when when your entire windshield is your eyes, it's it's also your soul. So protect your windshield when you're driving. Yes, very important. <laughs> How attached are you to your vehicles? Do you drive? And I, I, don't drive, I don't drive. I didn't yeah. think I, I didn't think you had to in in big cities in China. Yeah. Were you attached to your car you. when you drove in the United States? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'll tell you, there's a little beat up pickup that is parked perpetually across the street. It's like right outside my office window here, and I love it. And I I want to find the owner and just buy it off of him, <laughs> even though I don't drive drive here. It's the cutest little car I've ever seen. It's adorable. So, so do you ride a bicycle? Yeah. Um, I don't really even. I, I have a scooter, like a like a like a push scooter. It's not motorized or anything. Oh wow. Um, yeah. Uh, you can get you can get from my house to the subway stop on that scooter in mm, maybe 
five or six minutes. <laughs> so, and then the subway will take you wherever you want to go. So I'm jealous. Yeah. Jealous. Yeah, and there's a and yeah, there's also buses that that run everywhere. So the bus stop is even closer. Like the bus stop is, I don't know, a one minute walk. You know, so yeah, yeah, I, I live a good life. <laughs> and I mean, I'm, I'm just interested because there are... there's no shorts about uh, how wonderful your subway train is. Yeah, that's the that's probably true. But, there's but... a lot of. Um, I don't know that the sort of meeting meeting on a train or, or near misses. There's that the fairly recent one with the paper airplanes. Uh huh. The, yeah, ro- paper the romance in the, yeah, the romance in the city type thing. But I mean, so uh, so that's right, it's, that's that's about how great it is to ride the subway. But there's no attachment to the actual. Um, yeah, to the vehicle. To the vehicle. I, I just think it's interesting how much cars become a, a seat of our emotion. I mean, you think about like. Uh, especially expensive cars, people people fetishize them. And I just heard a program on uh, Studio 360, the the radio show, about Harley mm-hmm. Davidson and how how attached people are to their stupid motorcycles. Um, but uh, I I just think I just think it's interesting the amount of emotional weight we put on our cars. Yeah. Or I put on my car. You since you don't have one. Yeah. Are you pretty attached to your car? Um. Yeah. I mean, I I had a car for. Uh, let's. I'm trying to count it out. 10 years and I, I, I traded it in a couple of years ago and I felt kind of guilty, which is a bizarre feeling, isn't it? Yeah. But you I know, mean, I mean, my commute is half an hour, so I'm spending minimum, um, five hours a week in the car. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like I don't fetishize other objects. So I, I had to get rid of a desk a few years ago and I felt terrible about that too. So maybe I'm just, uh, <laughs> sentimental with misplaced affections <laughs> no it makes sense i think i think it really does i think there's something about particularly cars i don't know yeah and i don't know if this is just our americanness or what but there's there is something really um i don't know unique about the machinery of a of a vehicle that's that's different. I mean, I know you said you're attached to your desk, and and I get that, but like, you know, just the amount of people who are who are super attached to their cars, it's there's there's something, I don't know what it is about them. Well, what other there's piece a, of technology do you sit inside? Yeah, that I think that is definitely part of it. That it it engulfs like surrounds you. It it gives you power that you don't have. Right. It like it you, presents you a do. face to the world. So if you have a if you have a nice car or a beautiful car, people right. think of you a particular way. Right. And if you and have an ugly car, that, people do too. Right. And it's interesting that we use those words, you know, but they are in their way beautiful. Like there's an aesthetic to them. Um, I mean, not so much anymore, but they they were beautiful. Yeah, I agree. Oh man, cars these days are. Yeah. I mean, they're not but, ugly. They're just boring. Yes, that's that's the truth. The it's other and, and this is this is relevant. The other the other piece of technology broadly conceived that we feel that way about is our homes. And and not for nothing, there's a short that's very similar to Susie the Little Blue Coop called The Little House. It has it has mm-hmm. a very similar arc. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the two most expensive things most people own as well, if if you own your house. Yeah. 
Well, shall we move on, or we'll never get through all seven of these? <laughs> so next we'll talk about Toot Whistle, Plunk, and Boom, which is from 1954. A really interesting-looking uh, bit of animation. Uh, very... Uh, there's there's a variety of styles packed into this one, and some real um, I don't know more experimental than than many things that we've seen at least since um, Fantasia I guess I think I mean there there must be something about when it's about music that it brings out the the hey let's really mess around with animation and experiment with stuff um, at the Disney Studios. Uh, you want to give a summary of this one, Michael? I feel like I've I've done the last couple. It's just a history of how uh, the the four basic types of musical instruments evolve. So so toot is things like trumpets, brass instruments. Whistle is like a clarinet or a flute. Plunk is a guitar or a piano, something you whose strings you pluck. And boom, of course, is percussion. And and so it just goes through. It starts with the cavemen, and uh, tells you how these various uh, instruments were invented and refined uh, into the into the very complex, sophisticated instruments we know today. It's really a, a very charming short, and like a lot of these fifty shorts, it's kind of vaguely educational, in addition to being a lot of fun. Yeah, I would de- I would say it's more than vaguely educational. I think I, I definitely I learned about the and the brass instruments particularly. They really go into um, how we get the the sound and and you know from the length the length of the tube i guess that you're blowing through is where you get the sound from and then you can you can twist it in all the different shapes um you see like the french horn and the you know the trumpet the bugle and you know um whatever and it doesn't matter you know how you twist it it's it's the i don't know there's a physics to it It it's very interesting yeah i um and you know the the brass instruments are very foreign to me, much more foreign than the other types of instruments. So I I had never really considered them. Have you ever played a brass instrument? <laughs> no, not not yeah, no, definitely not. I played trumpet on the first shots of perspective album, but it, you know it wasn't playing the trumpet. It was just making an enormous amount of noise with the trumpet. Right. I've I've made noise with one, but I've never I I have no formal training or or anything. I just you know in band class when you're bored and you. You grab somebody's trumpet and start messing around to see what you can do. Yeah, and I, I have often wondered like how how you invent a musical instrument, how complicated that must have been to come up with the tuning of a guitar, for example, which is really weird. The the tuning of guitars is very strange. And and just how do you come up with putting a bridge and a nut and the, the tuning pegs and all this other stuff? And of course the answer is we've been working on this for thousands of years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you start you start with plunking your bow like a bow and arrow, and and you move on from there over generations. Yeah, but it is interesting which ones stick and which ones don't. You know, like I mean, I know you could still go get a harpsichord, but <laughs> it's much more likely that you're gonna have seen a piano or played a piano, right? Right. Well, and the, the reason for that is the piano is a much more versatile instrument than the harpsichord is. The harpsichord has that one sound and one volume, whereas pianos can ha- have a much more, uh, much larger expressive range. Yeah, I guess. I mean, for sure, that's part of it. But I don't know. Like, you know, take a different example, like a violin, viola. You know, like I mean that, like there's basically that violin, viola, cello, bass, cello, right? Yeah, <laughs> double that, bass and or double bass, right? And that's that's kind of it in in an orchestra, you know. Um, but there's there's got to be all these other 
iterations of stringed instruments and there's definitely different like culturally uh you know stringed instruments um and uh there's there's one here in china that's really popular uh that's just it's kind of like a single string and so again maybe it gets back to that versa versatility like which ones are more versatile but um then it's just a question of who's writing pieces for them so if nobody's writing pieces for your crazy instrument I mean, not that you're, the Chinese instrument is crazy. I was just thinking of somebody inventing a new instrument. If nobody's right, writing pieces yeah. for your instrument, then then it's going to be difficult to pass the skills on because there's nothing to pass on. Um, yeah. Even even with guitars, I mean, everybody knows the guitar and the bass guitar, and some people might know like a 12-string guitar. But, I mean, there's such a thing as a tenor guitar and a baritone guitar, All these all these steps between the regular guitar and the bass guitar that uh, very rarely get used. I think probably the most famous baritone guitar is the is in uh, Wichita Lineman by Glenn Campbell. Do you know that song? I don't. I don't know if I do or not. That's one of the greatest songs I'm ever like, written. But it has it has a very prominent. <laughs> well, then definitely I know. I must know it if it's one of the greatest ever. Yeah, you should go find it. But there, there's oh, a there's a very it. prominent baritone guitar solo in that. And so I, I mean, you're right. The 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 range of instruments is much greater than we think it is, even within the orchestra, I mean, which has a lot of instruments. There's lots of other stuff that could have happened. Presumably somewhere there's a smaller stringed instrument than the violin. But, you know, I don't know about it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I learned that there are different tunings of brass instruments. That I mean, the saxophone is not a brass instrument, but... It's a woodwind, but I mean that there are different kinds of saxophones. Yeah, it's a baritone sax and, and all that. Alto, tenor. Yeah. Soprano yeah. sounds just like a flute. I mean, it's 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 weird, and all this stuff, all this stuff. If this shirt is to be believed, and I see no reason why it wouldn't be, all all of that stuff evolved from somebody blowing into a piece of grass. Yeah, which is well, and that makes sense, dude. I mean, because it's still just a little. I mean, that's basically what it is on, on you know, a reed is, is basically that still, you know? Yeah, we, um, we've just, just made this, it more sophisticated and expressive. This, yeah, this apparatus after after the grass <laughs> that's changed, but the reed is still basically doing the same thing. It's amazing. The other thing, yeah. the other weird thing to think about is there was once a world without music. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. So, yeah. Definitely not the way that we have it now, right? And definitely like the the caveman thing. I just I I wonder about this. Like I wonder about you know I mean the I I don't want to over spiritualize it, but like the the line in the song like that's where the music comes from. It's like well where does music like really really come from? You it, know it like, seems so fundamentally human, doesn't it? Yeah, and it seems like a a gift. Um, Who invents music in the Bible? That's a great question. It's the sons of Cain. That's, yeah. When, when they form yeah. their city, uh, music is invented, which is interesting. You wonder if, like, Adam and Eve whistled. Yeah. No, you're right. There's, yeah, there's, because there's all those passages, um, which I, I find really fascinating because they're all, like, pre-flood. And I we don't have to get into, like, was the flood universal or any of that right now. Yeah. But you get all these inventions pre-flood and and people are are recognized for them like they're named in the bible for having invented them and then you know post flood where they yeah 
what happened there <laughs> where they reinvented or you know did did Noah remember how to make them all <laughs> or what you know I don't know uh maybe he didn't just take two of every animal he also took two of every instrument um, I'm not sure you'd need two I think probably the, those aren't going to reproduce yeah but sexually. for a band for a band <laughs> <laughs> but yeah anyway I yeah I, I do think music is is uh fundamental to I mean yeah, you just think about uh, worship, or and I, I mean, I know there's wor- more to worship than than just music or singing and stuff, but it's such a such a part of it, right? Yeah, um, singing to your singing. I mean, and then the like you said, the fundamental like humanness of it, like singing singing your child to sleep. You know, like what what was Eve doing when she was rocking Cain and Abel to sleep? You know, was she not singing or humming or she must have been doing something like they're birds so people i mean must have imitated bird song yeah i don't know it's 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 a very interesting thought and i think this this short doesn't exactly bring that up but in in presenting the evolution of musical instruments i think it raises the question yeah yeah so as a percussionist i'm interested in hearing what you have to say about boom yeah, Boom was, I feel like Boom, they got to the end and they they were running out of time or they, the short was running too long or something. I feel like they really didn't give give much attention to the variety of different kinds of drums. Because the guy doesn't even have a drum. He's banging on his stomach and his head. And, I mean, I think there's some interesting things there, you know, like the his, way that... His head can, makes the sound of a hi-hat, doesn't it? Yeah, or something, you know. Like, I mean, I think there is something, like the body percussion that we can do you know tapping tapping on our legs and you know or you know clicking clapping like all those sorts of things are are there's a there's something interesting there in itself the most fundamental type of music right i mean it's the type of music every culture has even if they even if they don't use other instruments they have percussion right but i would i would put that that kind where you're using your body almost more along with voice which they don't go into here at all either you know and so the the actual instrument of a drum is different than you know tapping or clapping or something like that i mean it's it's obviously very closely related but um yeah they didn't they didn't really go into it at all and then the variety of drums and cymbals and you know shakers marimbas yeah the Yes, the the super fun, um, yeah, uh, just various auxiliary drum toys. You know, there's there's so much good stuff there. So, I, I feel like yeah, they need to go back and update this one. They didn't wanna... mention the egg that the youth pastor's wife shakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I uh, as far as the educationalness of it, I. Yeah, there's there's a couple of things that that we've seen where I'm like, what? Oh, I would I just want more of this. Like, yeah. I want a whole like series of this. Like like take me through music history, teach me music theory, all this sort of stuff in animation. Like do it. There is another one called Melody that also features the the kind of framing device of the the blue owl teaching his birds about melody mm. in this case. So if you yeah. if you like to whistle plunk and boom, that's another good one. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, the let's yeah let's just talk briefly on the animation of it. I don't want to skip over that stuff. So yeah, the, the there's a blue owl that teaches his birds, and and they're just they're kind of I don't know they're the most probably traditionally animated thing in I mean Disney Disney style animated mm-hmm. uh, in this piece. And then uh, you've got the you've got various 
because it does go through kind of the evolution of things. So you've got the cavemen, and then uh, you've got some medieval guys in there, particularly with the horns, and you've got um, uh, you've got some different. This is this is again where we get into some of the racial stuff. <laughs> you've got um, people from Asia, and you've got you know just highly stylized, I guess. Um, and then uh, there's also but then there's there's some really cool stuff they do where it's like just the lines and and things aren't filled in you know like uh, you you just get the outlines of, of of people and instruments and things I don't, I don't know there's a lot of really interesting things that was going on that were going on in there it's a lot of fun yeah I uh, this is this is one of the all time great Disney shorts I think it's um one of the, one of the two best that we watched for today because I, I love the next one too. But uh, yeah. two whistle plunk and boom is just wonderful. Yeah, really nice. Yeah, well, let's move on to in the bag if you're if you're ready to. Uh, in the bag is from 1956, and this is I think uh, the most just it's just it's just a cartoon. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like like whatever image you have in your head of like a cartoon, like this this fits it. Um, it's uh, what's I I wrote down the guy's name Humphrey the Bear or yeah, Jay Audubon Woodlore. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that one. Uh, and I think they've been in it. They're 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 in more than this, right? Like hum- a, Humphrey has six. five shorts. I know that Jay Audubon Woodlore is in at least two. Yeah, um, but yeah, this is just delightful. It's really fun. It's a fun little pop song, um, which actually where, got released as a single. Yeah, um, because uh, Jay. Jay Audubon wants to get his park cleaned up because of the litter um, and, you know, s- sings this song to get the bears to do it. That's basically the whole plot. <laughs> yeah, that's a great little song. Take a piece of trash, put it in a bag, bomp, bomp. <laughs> I'm in my head the rest of the day. Uh, yeah. yeah, this one's just, yeah, it's just delightful. Um, Bill Thompson, the White Rabbit, is Jay Audubon Woodlore. Yeah. Also, Mr. Smee, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. A, a <laughs> Disney was... legend. He actually does quite a quite a bit. Yeah. And he's so... he's great in this role. A rare uh, villainous role for Bill Thompson. I guess Smee is kind of a villain. Yeah. And he's not exactly a villain. He's just kind of lazy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess. I, yeah. It depends how you. He actually lays yeah. down in a hammock while the bears are cleaning up the park right. for him. Yes. This is true. He's he's singing the song and. Um, as he as he goes to lay down. So yeah, I guess he's exploiting nature. So <laughs> while he's in charge of it, while he's in charge of it, I mean, how, really, how is how is what he's doing different than the litter? Honestly, I mean, it's both taking advantage of nature and in inappropriate ways. And well, he does feed the yeah, bears chicken right. cacciatore. He's, he's definitely a villain. <laughs> well, I just think if the if the short has a villain, it's got to be him, right? Because you you go along with Humphrey. Yeah. No, the there's yes, definitely you go along with Humphrey. He's the villain. That's true. The villain is the the original humans who That's true. we don't see. We just see them leaving the park and having left all their trash everywhere. I'm trying to remember you know, what the name of the park is. I don't, uh, uh, it's it's some parody it of Yosemite area, or Yeah, or it's like Yellowstone. Brown, it's, yeah, it's Yellowstone, but it's brown. It's like brown rock or something like that. Or, yeah, or something like that. Not yeah. as good as Jellystone. Then... <laughs> no, 
I'm just good. And then there's old faithful in real life and old faithful in this one. Yeah. So, so what happens is the other, uh, when the song fails, when the bears catch on to him, he makes this chicken cacciatore and tells them they can't, um, they can't have any until they clean their section of the park. So all the bears except Humphrey run out there and move all their trash to Humphrey's section. And so he has to pick up everything. And, and his, his big plan is to stuff it all into this hole in the ground, which turns out to be a geyser and makes a mess everywhere. Yeah. Which apparently is, you know, a little bit of uh, <laughs> life imitating art or whatever that is. Um, I just remember seeing a headline not too long ago about how some geyser exploded and it was just years and years and years of, of tourist junk that people had been throwing into this hole in the ground. Oh, what so. a bunch of idiots. <laughs> <laughs> At least Humphrey's a bear. <laughs> That's right. Can you blame him? But this short yeah. also has the single funniest thing I've ever seen, which is uh, one of Humphrey's other plans is to burn the litter. And as he does so, <laughs> Smokey the Bear <laughs> turns up and says, only you can prevent forest fires. And then how would you describe the way he walks away? <laughs> he, like, he's clearly a cutout that, they, that yes. they're moving it, very chintzily along the it screen. Is, it is Monty Python's Flying Circus style yep. animation. Yep. Like, that's what it is. It's a cutout that just comes in <laughs> and and then just, you know, pans off screen. Like, it's... Yes, I agree. I absolutely hilarious. Right. Wonderfully hilarious. I would love to and be in the room when they decided they decided to do that. Like, well, let's have yeah. smoking the bear and somebody's like, "No, let's just cut him out of construction paper." <laughs> <laughs> Cuz he clearly doesn't belong in this short, but oh yeah, it was so great. So great. Just not what I expected at all. No, that's why I picked this one instead of the, one of the other. I mean, I love Humphrey, but the, the the Smokey the Bear thing is just hysterical. Plus, the song is so catchy. Yeah, it's really catchy. It's, it's yeah, it's super fun. Humphrey so, yeah, shows could... up in Fantasyland in Disney World just on a poster for the the circus, which is really weird because, as I think we, I think I mentioned this before, um, there is a circus bear, and his name's not Humphrey. His name is Bongo. Yeah. And I'm not sure Humphrey's any better was, known than Bongo. No, probably not. But the yeah, the song was similar in in some respects, you know, to the <laughs> whatever the Bongo song. Yeah, the say so, it with a slap. Yeah, and and yeah, the bears the slap. bears are very much of that same model. Yeah, yeah. So probably whoever designed Fantasyland just had them mixed up in their head. Oh, I <laughs> hope not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you would hope that. Yeah, that that their knowledge of Disney would be a little little deeper than that, but uh, yeah, you could you could imagine it happening. Two two <laughs> relatively unknown bears drawn in really similar styles. I don't know. I can imagine it. So I don't think there's a whole lot to say about this short, other than that it's a lot of fun and everybody should go watch it. Yeah, it's wonderful. Next up, we have my wife's favorite cartoon short of all time, The Truth About Mother Goose, which in which the Paige Cavanaugh trio uh, takes you through the history of three nursery rhymes and the rather dark real-life events that inspired them. I feel like yeah. not enough people know about The Truth About Mother Goose, that this is one of the the truly great Disney productions of the 1950s and uh, and really completely unknown to everybody. Yeah, I'd never seen it. 
lot of good music in these shorts that we're going through. This, I mean, I really liked the the trio. I, I, I enjoyed their music very much. Yeah, and, and if if you if you like that, there's another short that has similar music called Jack and Old Mac, uh, which is just essentially just jazz versions of Old MacDonald and uh, the house that Jack built. Hmm. It's not as good as The Truth About Mother Goose, though, because The Truth About Mother Goose, again, tries to teach you something. Now, I will say, the uh, the backstories they give you of these nursery rhymes are spurious at best. <laughs> uh, except except for London Bridge is Falling Down, which is absolutely about what they say it's about. Um, but the So the idea here is that little Jack Horner, which I assume everybody remembers... Uh, is about a guy who steals a deed from a pie that's being given to King Henry VIII, which is not as weird as it sounds, because apparently people really did hide uh, deeds and pies. And blackbirds. Yeah. And and uh, so so that that's that. And then the other one, in a really super dark twist, is Mary Mary Quite Contrary, which is about Mary Queen of Scots uh, and, and her being all of her lovers being murdered and then her being murdered by a, a very scary Elizabeth I. Now, that's a real story, but I, I I don't know that people agree that the nursery rhyme comes from the story. It's got to be true, Michael. It says, according to the facts, right in the short. <laughs> wow, I mean, if the facts say it. What's, what, I think what's most interesting to me about that segment is the negative portrayal of Queen Elizabeth I, which you never see uh, in pop culture. Queen Elizabeth I is almost always the good guy. In fact, Queen Elizabeth I killed way more people than, um, quote-unquote, Bloody Mary, her her Catholic predecessor to the throne. It's just as Victoria says, she had better press. Mm. So I, I'm, I'm fascinated that, that Queen Elizabeth is the heavy in, uh, in, the, in that segment of the short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know enough about the royals to to follow that, but yeah, I do wonder about the decision making there. If it, if that was <laughs> somebody had it out for her, <laughs> and then uh, yeah, London Bridge is is just a history of the bridge, mm-hmm. and yeah, just there, there's a fire, and then yeah, it, in the end, it gets it gets torn down. Um, well, I, yeah. a thing that I think. I didn't know before I watched this short that is again true is that London Bridge became a place where they built houses like people lived on the bridge. That was amazing to me. Yeah, I was fascinated by that too. And and when it was originally built it was rich people and by the end it was poor people, which you know, that's the way neighborhoods work. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the fire happened before they could regentrify and throw all the poor people into the river. Yeah. So, yeah, so, okay, so I had a couple questions on this, Michael, for you. So, <laughs> um, one is this, this sort of taking, um, a, a little rhyme or a tale or something and then trying to connect it to something in, out of history. Um, it, it kind of rings similar to me as like the sort of demythologizing of, like fairy tales or King Arthur or Robin Hood or that sort of thing, you know, like, is it similar? Is it different? Am am I drawing a false parallel there? I don't know that I would read it that way. I think almost it's mythologizing that those, those songs, I mean, you, you must've said little Jack Horner when you were a kid. Oh yeah, for sure. There's not much story there, right? I mean, there's not much magic, but learning that it's supposedly about this, uh, 
about this wicked uh, servant who steals the deed and lives the rest of his life in fear that the king's going to behead him. Uh, t- to me, that that that's um, more interesting. It's more it's more mythological, not less. Uh, and especially something like London Bridge. Like, think about how much richer that song is now that you know the history of London Bridge. Yeah, I, that, that's a very good argument. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Yeah, I was oh, okay. So I'm really glad you said that because I was I was curious about this because I mean I th- I feel like Disney is in the mythology making business oh, yeah. in general or at least perpetuating of it. And so I thought it was interesting if they were kind of going opposite here, but I guess they weren't. So I don't think so. I yeah. I and this is another one where I wish there was. 15 shorts like this where they go through all of the the famous nursery rhymes. I, yeah. I enjoyed this one so much. Yeah. Oh, I and I, I absolutely really enjoyed it too. I just thought it was interesting that uh, yeah. Um, yeah, because nursery rhymes are kind of interesting in general anyway, right? Like why why these rhymes? Why did, How do these things get passed down? They're mostly seemingly nonsense, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I mean, even if even if Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow is connected to this Mary, or if it's, uh, you know, a spiritual allusion to, you know, to Mary, the mother of Jesus or whatever, like, um, it's still that no, very few kids, if any, are picking up on that. Right. Probably very few parents as they sing it are, are doing that, you know, doing that work. So, but now, now yeah. think about how much easier it is to teach the history of Mary Queen of Scots um, when you can connect it to this nursery rhyme. So if I were a if I were a history professor, I think I would really like this. I mean, maybe not because maybe if I were a history professor, I'd see this as oversimplified nonsense. But um, I feel like it's easier to learn these things when it's attached to songs you already know. Not that those are the purposes of the songs. I'm not sure the songs had a purpose. I, I really like the idea that. Um, the children chant Little Jack Horner mockingly outside his house, which is a thing yeah. that, that really happened to Lizzie Borden. You know Lizzie Borden, who was acquitted of killing her family with an axe? Do you, do you know that story? <laughs> that's, that's I don't. Um, that's dark. Yeah, it's one of the most famous. Um, I, th- I think everybody agrees she did it and just got away with it. Um, but uh, children would stand outside her house and chant... Uh, Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. uh, And then something just for fun, she gave her father 41. So, I mean, that that rings true to me. If the Little Jack Horner um, song is based on on this guy, William Horner, is is the person it's supposedly based on. Um, It it makes sense to me that children would find out about it and taunt him outside his window. (laughs) Yeah. Or even I'm thinking even if they don't quite taunt him, like it is interesting how these, uh, you know, it's almost like the skip skip rope songs or the uh, whatever the hand slapping games, you know, um, and the songs that go along with those and how those how those get passed from generation to generation, playground to playground. And sometimes they are based in you know, some clever child's understanding of, of the the world around them, you know, and, and maybe not fully comprehending the whole story, but knowing enough of it that they, they set it to some sort of rhythm or song or whatever. I, I remember realizing when I was a kid that the song Joy to the World, the Teacher's Dead, like 
everybody knew that. Uh, I, I visited some friends in another part of the country, and they all knew Joy to the World, the teacher's dead. And in the Internet age, that's not surprising. Right. But this was 1988, you know? And, and how, did yeah. they, how did they know? How did that song get around like that? Yeah, it's really, it's fascinating. And I think there's, I think there's got to be <laughs> work that's been done on it. There, there has. It was like, it's folk, yeah. folklorists talk about this sort of thing because that's really what we're dealing with yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, and that, yeah, this is where I wish I had more time in my life because I, I think it'd be really fascinating to to go down that rabbit trail and in my own life, you know, and just read read some of that stuff and, and find out about it. But yeah, or uh, like like urban legends are another good one. Yeah, the same urban legends exist in varied forms all over the country. Well, where do they come from? Who's passing them? Especially in the days before easy travel. Yeah. Yeah, and who? In, yeah, and even who invents them? You know, mm-hmm. like. Yeah, like I mean, let's say. Well, that, nobody's inventing say, them, Josh. They happen to a friend of my cousin's. <laughs> no. Yes. With the urban legend things, but going back to like, uh, you know, little Jack Horner sat in the corner, like, um, yeah, kids that I, I don't know. I do. I love that idea of the children kind of being, uh, you know, prophetically chanting outside of this guy's, um, house, you know, cause you can't, you can get away with stuff, but then you have to live with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so you can't, you I mean, I think that's that's another theme that maybe you see through here, you know, like um, maybe that's what Humphrey's dealing with in, in the bag, you know, <laughs> like he's he's hiding stuff. But then, you know, you can't really hide it. It comes out or, you know, Goofy's dealing with a no smoking or whatever. But um, yeah. But anyway, you know, like just the idea of there's there's some genius little kid who's just really got a mind for, you know, putting things to lyrics, you know, who's who's able to you know, cast the story into a, into this sort of, yeah, prophetic, you know, prophetic in the sense of like speaking truth to power, prophetic, uh, bit of, bit of wisdom. And then, you know, we're all still saying it, even though we don't necessarily understand the connection. Yeah. Like that, that's weird too. Like this, this rhyme arises in the 16th century or whenever, I don't think they even know when it comes from. And, uh, somehow every child in America still knows it and probably the United Kingdom as well. It's it, yeah. it's really strange. Do you yeah. would you prefer that um, Little Jack Horner is the invention of one like genius kid, or do you prefer the idea that it rises spontaneously out of a group of children? Because I think that's more interesting. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Expand on that. Like, what's what's the difference? Like, I mean, somebody's got to throw the first line out there somewhere, right? Or no. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. I'm not a folklorist, but it it seems to me that there, there's a kind of Jungian reading of all this, which is that the 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 those poems kind of exist in everybody's subconscious and they become manifest in a particular mm. group. I don't yeah. know. I mean, there's so many variations on a lot of these things, except there's not in those in those uh, in those nursery rhymes. So I don't know. No, you know, spending time with kids and being around kids, it is amazing how quickly their brains work i mean and this is like i mean all of us are this way because we're social creatures but like like one kid will start the you know even if it's something simple like ooh or whatever and then you know it's like immediate that they're all doing it you know and when was it even one kid who started it or where did they all have that idea at the same time because it's that fast 
you know? Yeah. And it's almost like if you could do it in slow motion, would would there be a millisecond of that first kid going, and then everybody jumping in, or what, you know? And the, the origin like, gets lost almost immediately. So it's not just that we don't know the origin. It's that five years after it was written, nobody knew the origin. Or two, three days after it was written, nobody knew the origin. Or in the moment, you know? Like, if, if they're doing it and they're misbehaving and they shouldn't be doing it, it's like, who started it? You know, like nobody knows who started it. They all just did it, you know? They did, like, it, it and, and, and you see that in more complicated ways with, you know, I mean, I mean, my, my kids are writing like little, you know, lyrics and songs and, and things and, you know, with each other. Um, and then, you know, it, I, I, you're, as far as like your group theory, you know, like after it's gone through, you know, five minutes of iterations where one, you know, one, one child has said one thing and then the other one is repeating it but can't remember exactly what it was or wants to add their own idea in and then you know the other one repeats that back like it it is a it's it's a very collaborative uh creation and it is, you're right it's not a work of like a single kid who like shows up at the playground and is like okay guys let's all learn this yeah which i think also accounts for their continued popularity yeah, because rather than being the work of one person, a work of many, and when it's work of many, it's it's broader somehow. Those yeah. those those weird little nursery rhymes, they're mysterious when you're a kid, right? And then they also make perfect sense when you're a kid. Yeah, I, I don't remember asking a lot of questions about little Jack Horner sticking his thumb into a piece of pie and pulling out a plum. Like that didn't strike me as weird. Even though now that I hear an explanation for it, the explanation makes more sense than just there's a kid sticking his thumb into a pie. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm glad you brought that up because I think I think that is much more interesting, and I think it's much, uh, it's much more. I I don't know. There's there's that. Uh, it's 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 its own form of magic in a way, right? The way, the way that we. The way you know where where do these things come from and the and the way that we attach to them and uh yeah there there is a I don't know there's a sense of wonder in it to me at least yeah as, as with many things that that come from your childhood too this sense this sense that they're ancient and somehow also brand new because you're a kid and have just discovered them yeah and you don't have a really have a sense of how old the world is yeah now I want to go read a bunch of nursery rhymes. Yeah. Do you read nursery rhymes to your kids? Uh, occasionally, I probably should more than I do. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if you should or not. Yeah. Yeah. One one last thing about this short. Um, I think the animation is rather clearly a, a practice run for Sleeping Beauty. Oh yeah, definitely. But I think in some ways better. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of different vibe. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say anything's better than Snow White because I, I took such a hard line on that last week or last month. But um, yeah, I, I, they're they're certainly similar, and this this stands on its own. But if you love the animation in Snow White, you absolutely must see the truth about Mother Goose. Yeah, Sleeping Beauty, you mean? Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, I yeah, you're right. I shouldn't I shouldn't make that a competitive sort of this is better or that is better. I really liked the way this one looked and it definitely, it, you, last, last month when we were talking about Sleeping Beauty, we t- kind of talked about how the characters, the animators didn't like it because they felt like they really couldn't put life into the characters because they were so like caught into this tapestry style. 
right? Mm-hmm. And in this one, I feel like that's not as much the case. And there was a little more, I don't know, the ba- the backgrounds in this one are not that tapestry style exactly, but they are very stylized in some different way. The colors and stuff are much brighter and more, I don't know, modern, maybe. Mm. I don't I don't know. They just pop very differently than Sleeping Beauty did. Sleeping Beauty is obviously a, a gorgeous film. So, yeah, I, the, the comparison, other than they, they uh, I don't know, they rhyme, I guess. That's all I could say. Yeah, I think that's a good description. Yeah. So we'll move into uh, uh, <laughs> another really weird one. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think you described it as bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, when we were talking about it, which I, I love. I think that's perfect. Uh, the story of Anyberg, USA, uh, also from 1957, 100% different uh, style, I think, than The Truth About Mother Goose. Can we agree uh, this think- short is not all that good? Okay, <laughs> it is not, but it's wonderful in its own way. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's not- so strange. Yeah, it's the strangeness that I think makes it makes it worth makes it worth talking about at least. Yeah, I would agree um, with that. I mean, I picked this one, so obviously I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, basically, the, the story of Anyberg is you know right there in the title. It doesn't matter where this is taking place, but the homicides from uh, car accidents have risen to atrocious amounts. The, the population sign on Anyberg, USA has gone from 50,000 to 500. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, the, uh, so they decide to put the, the cars on trial. And it's a really, totally normal thing that any town totally, would do. Yeah. Yes. And the cars are very much in the style of, you know, Susie the Little Blue Coop or, um, you know, forward in time to the, to the cars, um, franchise uh so and then there's these two lawyers and it's it's done mostly in rhyme not 100 percent in rhyme um it's a really i don't i i like it michael i just really like it um but uh the the story all flips on its head when the uh the defendant uh yeah right there's the prosecutor and the defending the, lawyer the defending uh, the the uh, well i don't know what, what's the term defending attorney yeah, uh, points out that we we all are the ones who are driving these cars. <laughs> it's not the car's fault. It's us. And then it's not a gun issue, the- Josh. It's a heart issue. <laughs> right. Guns don't kill people, Michael. Bullets kill people. <laughs> but I mean, this the, the, his his <laughs> argument is essentially the argument that the NRA makes about about yes. gun violence. Okay, and the, the, you've just nailed why this this one makes me a little uncomfortable. I wasn't actually thinking about guns, although obviously I should have with the homicide thing. The, um, I was I was thinking about um, I was I was going back to technology again, mm-hmm. just the in general in technology and our um, yeah our relationship with it and what it says about us and all those sorts of things. But I think we can go either way. I well, mean, guns the, are the defense's argument is essentially that technology is neutral. Yes. That it has no value except what you do with it, which, I mean, right. I disagree with. I don't know how you feel. Um, I 100% disagree, but I want to say here that we have a little bit of, like, the um, – uh, I, I just finished reading um, Why Liberalism Failed, uh-huh. uh, which is ex- excellent, 100 – really great book. Yeah, I, re- I really enjoyed it. that too. 
Yeah, there's a Christian Humanist Profiles uh, episode on on that book that you should go back and listen to if you want the broad strokes of it. But basically, uh, his his argument in that book is that both sides actually want the same thing um, and are fighting for the same thing. And there's an element of that here because he's making the argument that the technology is neutral. The prosecutor is in a similar way, like he brings in these experts and they're all saying, it's not our fault. We, you know, we designed the cars to be safe. We designed the, you know, the roads to be safe. Um, you know, the scientist comes in and talks about, you know, whatever he did with, with the vehicles, the welder is there, you know, it's all like, um, I don't, I don't know. There's, there's a little bit of like a two sided to it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Where, where both, both sides are trying to, um, the, the way I was thinking about it was, you know, the the way uh, Mark Zuckerberg will say, you know, well, I just designed Facebook to be a social network. Like, I had no idea that it was going to become this political machine, <laughs> you know, um, the, the technology is neutral, you know, or at Jack, <laughs> you know, or whatever his name is, the the, the Twitter CEO, you know, Um yeah, it, it's not my fault that all this uh, immense bullying um or what bullying is too weak of a word, you know, harassment and, and stuff happens on my platform. Like I did, you know, I, people are just supposed to be talking about <laughs> their status, you know, what they ate for lunch. You know, it's not my fault. The technology is neutral. It's how people use it. Yeah. Yeah. When, when in fact the, the technology use changes who you are in pretty serious ways. I mean, he, I mean, the, the defense attorney is right. I mean, it's not like cars as a object are responsible and human beings play no role, but cars shape human beings into particular sorts of people. You're a different person when you drive than when you don't drive. Yes. And so, so the idea, the idea that, oh, it's just people's fault. That's true, but it's kind of a stupid point. It's, I, I, this is, this is why the, uh, it's not a gun problem. It's a heart problem, which is a, a very common evangelical defense against gun control has always bothered me because, okay, yeah, so I recognize people are bad. But, you know, people do terrible things. People have murder in their heart. You're not going to be able to wipe out sin. Uh, you know, we could make it harder for people to kill large groups of people. <laughs> doesn't mean nobody's ever going to kill anybody, but it does mean, you know, they're going to kill fewer right. people each time, and that seems like a good thing to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I mean, even just the way that you said it just there, like, so let's – yeah, people are evil, so let's give them weapons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so, so I mean, what's interesting is the short ultimately seems to take that position because the defense attorney makes that case, and everybody is a very safe, very courteous driver for about forty-five minutes, and then they go right back to it. Right. Right. So again, it's not as simple as just and, blaming the technology, but it is saying, well, you know, if if the technology turns people into homicidal maniacs, uh, maybe the technology is not a neutral thing. Right. And this goes back to that complicated sort of relationship that that we were talking about a little bit with with Susie the Blue Coop. You know, like part of the defense's uh, argument. At one point, he says, would you call this car a drunk? <laughs> and then he shows the dr- the drunk drivers inside. But that's exactly what they do in Susie, <laughs> you know, in the blue coop. <laughs> she's, she's drunk, you know. Um, she's the stolen car. So there, there's, yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, I don't know. There's, it's, it's, it's like you said, it's, it's just not as simple as it's made out to be. 
I will say this is an outrageously violent short for Walt Disney. <laughs> like, uh, one guy gets his legs crushed by a car. <laughs> it's really, I mean, yeah. pretty, pretty, there's no yeah. blood or anything, but it's pretty violent. No, but it's, yeah, yeah. That is the scene that sticks out in my head as well. <laughs> it's a bizarre yeah. short. And, and like you, I was made uncomfortable slash angry by the defense attorney and the, the, the short's apparent acceptance of it. Although I do think, I do think his point is undermined by the end of the, by the end of the short. Yeah. Well, and that's what I, I think. I think both sides are just undermining each other in this. It's, it's kind of like there's the, the, whatever the outside of this worldview would be like can't can't have a say like it seems like both sides are locked in heated battle but there's there's like an underlying undergirding philosophy that is that is driving both sides forward which i mean i think Deneen would probably recognize as liberalism yeah yeah so we should send this short to patrick Deneen and see <laughs> yeah we should have him talk about it. Um, did you? Did you? Was this one of your inspirations in writing? I'm writing a book right now called "Modern Technology and the Human Future" by Craig Gay. I'm hoping to get him on the, the on profiles. But uh, so so as I'm watching this short, I'm thinking a lot about how technology is not a neutral thing at all, which is a position I already held, but which Gay um, he makes the the case very eloquently. That book comes out. It'll be out by the time this episode airs, probably or close to it. So I would I would recommend that book if anybody is. Further interested in this tech, this topic, it's a Christian perspective on modern technology. Yeah, I, I, that sounds really fascinating. Do you have anything so, else to say now that we've uh, no doubt pissed off the anti-gun control advocates in our audience? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we weirdly this is the most this is the show where I'm the most politically liberal. <laughs> <laughs> raging against yeah. capitalism modern technology guns <laughs> meanwhile i go on sectarian review and uh, an openly marxist show <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so yeah so just a couple other things i wanted to say on this one just on the animation i i thought it was there was a there was a couple clever things that they did where the the two def- the two attorneys you know are just as opposite as can be one is very round one is extremely sharp one's one's super tall one's super you know short uh i don't know one's very quiet one's very loud yes yeah yeah just it was it was fun uh i don't know just playing with the contrast there that i thought was fun and then uh, what i really loved though was uh the sports car when they have the sports car on the on the stand and the sports car just can't like help himself like he's he's a sports car like he, i really enjoyed that like he's just you know like he's flashing his grin at everybody and like, <laughs> um you know like the the i don't remember what the prosecutor asked him but he answers i guess you ought to know <laughs> i don't know it's just <laughs> I, I i just really enjoyed that I don't, it just really tickled me <clears throat> It ends with the last line in there is where there's life, there's hope. Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually pretty dark if you think about it. And then it's it's this like total refusal to do anything about what's killing us. That it's it it really is a parable for the for the uh, the mass shooting era. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's. I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you drew that out because like I said I, I was I was drawn out those parallels to like our 
just kind of our massive systems in general, uh, specifically with technology. But I think I think the gun control thing is is much, yeah, definitely definitely rings truer than what I was thinking. No, 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 I don't I don't think it does. I think it's just the the most visible manifestation of that right now in the United States. But I I mean it is it is symptomatic of our our attitude toward all technology and guns of course are a technology. Um this this notion that they're neutral and human beings have complete control over over them and and using them, you know, you can use them right and you can use them wrong and you know, it doesn't really do anything to you. And I I just think that's that's so clearly fallacious that uh I'm annoyed when people when people make that argument. Yeah, I will say my students seem less inclined to make that argument, uh, and, and maybe that's because they know I don't like it. But it, it, it seems <laughs> it seems to me that my students, even my freshmen, are more skeptical of technology than people our age were at that age. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's that's interesting. The the, the generational. Um, I think it's really fascinating to see where the next generation ends up on on some of these key issues just because of the massive amount like how different our lives are yeah and how different their lives are than our lives were mm-hmm. like i mean you you mentioned it earlier the you know the fact that everybody knows the same sort of nursery rhymes or you know uh uh you know jokes <laughs> or whatever you know i mean everybody knows you know uh you know, Batman smells Robin laid an egg or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1988 is is amazing because it's pre, you know, for all intents and purposes, pre-internet. Um, and then, you know, that's not as amazing now. And and what's that? What's that do to to a group that grows up 100% in the smart smart device era? You know. Well, I just think about you know when we were in high school. If you wanted to hear an album that was out of print, you had to track it down. Yeah, and now essentially nothing's out of print, and I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what that does. I haven't really thought about it beyond noticing that that's a difference. But it must do something. Technology is well, not yeah, neutral. Well, and it's got to do something with the idea of scarcity in general, mm-hmm. right? Like there's so there's so much less scarcity in at least consumer products. You know, like you can get any movie, you can get any. You know, nothing's ever sold out. You know. Um, because yeah, you can always just duplicate it, right? Like I, I don't know, it's very, very interesting. Well, and one of the points Gay makes is that duplication thing. Uh, now that three D printers exist, that's that's going to move beyond digital media. That's that's not just going to be about um, music and movies anymore. Uh, pretty soon, we're going to be able to duplicate physical objects at home. So you think about what happened to the music industry and the the film industry with the advent of of digital piracy and that's going to happen to every industry yeah which is kind of scary if you think about it at least it scares me (laughs) (laughs) we should move on to the very cheerful final short in our collection here paul bunyan we should yeah this is yeah cheerful is a good word for it um well, is it cheerful? I don't know. It's another it's technology <laughs> parable, isn't it? It's definitely another technology parable, and it's it's one I wanted to ask you about because I mean it's 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 uh there's there's a few that are like this. Um, Paul Bunyan is obviously the one we're watching, so we'll spend most of our time there. But uh, they mention in there the uh, what's his name, John Henry? Mm-hmm. Is that the 
the the guy who races the the steam yep. the steam hammer he's with the, his the African American railroad worker. Yeah, um, I don't know. I did, yeah, there's there's obviously some parallels there in the way that this story is told and the way that one is told. Um, Nobody, I assume, needs us to tell the story of Paul Bunyan. Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> I, I guess we should for the sake of, uh, you know, we've done it with all of them, but it's a tall tale. Yeah. Um, and and Paul Bunyan is an enormous lumberjack. At the end of the, at the, he moves across the country seeking wilderness instead of civilization. And but the problem is everywhere he goes, because he cuts down so many trees, he makes civilization possible. So he's always on the move. And and in a detail I've never heard in any other telling of Paul Bunyan, maybe you have. He gets in a race with a. Uh, a uh, mechanical saw and loses and he and his enormous blue ox babe head up into Alaska, which is the last place where civilization hasn't reached. So that's Paul. Bunyan. Yeah. Yeah. I had not heard that one either. I knew the, um, I knew the him, you know, tramping across Minnesota and creating, creating the 10,000 lakes. And I knew him, uh, carving out the, What's he carved out? The Missouri River? Is that right? I can't remember. Now that you mention yeah. it, I know that he makes yeah. Pikes Peak. Yeah, yeah. So all that stuff, I was I was kind of more familiar with. And the Aurora Borealis um, is him and Babe fighting. Yeah, that was. <laughs> did it, did it make as much sense as Pike Peaks? <laughs> Pikes no, no, Peak, I, I don't understand where the lights are coming from. <laughs> yeah, but uh, or the. What is what is the mountain range that they say you built the the Tetons? Is the that right? Sierra Nevadas. I can't remember. One of one of yeah. those western mountain ranges, Cascades. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So he keeps moving west to cut down trees. I, I thought he must be cutting down all the trees that that uh, Johnny Appleseed planted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's he's making all the natural uh, wonders that Pecos build it and make. Yeah, yeah, Pecos Bill made the other one. There, there, yeah, there's the the real similarity between Pecos Bill and, and his horse and uh, Paul Bunyan and Babe. Well, and all, like all these tall tales kind of have DNA in common, right? They're all they're often called big men. I mean, not all of them are big the way Paul Bunyan is big, but they're, they're these larger-than-life figures who, uh, who, who they're, they're these just-so stories about where things came from. It's uh, We're back to folklore. Um, Paul Bunyan begins as stories that lumberjacks tell each other, and, and he may indeed be based on a real person, although obviously not a real 30-foot person. 63 axe handles, however however tall that is. Um, he may or may not be based on a real person, but these stories kind of spread and get bigger, and you know the whole point of telling a tall tale is to top the last person who told it, and so eventually Paul gets to be 63 axe handles high with his feet on the ground and his head in the sky. Yeah. So is that the difference then between uh, going back to my question earlier with the mother goose? Like, um, because this story is is getting bigger and bigger and richer and richer. To go back to oh yeah, there was this you know this guy who was six foot three and and he cut down trees a little faster than the rest of us. Yeah, if, like, they, if they made a movie like that, that would I, I think be quite different than the truth about mother goose. Yeah. Because that would be that would be taking the interesting things out of the story. Right. I mean, who wants a demythologized Paul Bunyan? I'm sure it's coming. I'm sure Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe are <laughs> filming it as we speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So the yeah the 
the fable side of it, I guess, or the parable, the parable bit of it. There's this this promise of progress, um, and the this I don't know the that civilization piece that you mentioned, becoming modern, um, is all is all somehow wrapped up in here, where where he's causing he's causing the thing that is his own demise yeah. in a way, um, the, and and can't defeat it. And, and this is all very typical. I mean, not exactly, but it's it's much more typical of the John Henry story, where John Henry is a tragic figure. He dies at the end of most versions of the John Henry legend. Right. Paul Bunyan, other than this, I, I, is generally not a tragic figure. And so it, it's interesting to me that, that that's the that's the route they took. Maybe they wanted to make a John Henry, but were afraid to have an African-American hero. Oh, that's interesting. They end up maybe, making maybe a John so. Henry short, by the way, in like the year 2000. So I mean, it's pretty mm-hmm. good if anybody's interested. It is very African-American um, to their credit. You know, I mean, John Henry is an African-American story. John Henry yeah. doesn't really work if he's white. Paul Bunyan, you know, is Minnesotan or New England yeah. or Oregonian. I believe he also, there are also stories about him in Oklahoma where he, uh, he works on oil wells that have to have hinges so that uh, so that they don't go into outer space. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that's funny. Yeah, I kn- I knew him from the Minnesota connection as a as a kid. I was I was oh, actually sure, kind of yeah. surprised when he when he washes up in New England at the beginning of this. I, that was kind of new to me. Yeah, Minnesota is very proud of him. There are there are a number of towns with very large Paul Bunyan statues. Yeah. My favorite thing, my favorite Minnesota connection is the ridiculous Scandinavian accent of the guy who tells the story. Yes. Oh man, it's so great. I loved it. You're exactly right. Yeah, that was really good. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I liked is. Uh, his story is too big to be told by one person, so there's three or four narrators. Like each of yeah. them take a piece of it. Like he's he's too big for any one man to have a hold on. Mm. Just like he's raised by a village. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. Yeah, that's really good stuff. Um. Yeah, it's really really fun all all around. Just a really fun short. But you're right. There's there's those. Yeah, there, there's more than than his actual stature and the bigness of it, you know. Yeah, uh, um, that's that's a nice touch. He's a he's a great man too. Like he he he's this force for good in the in the world. It's not just that he's large. Although I I have to say I'm confused as to why the lumberjacks would be so happy to see him coming, since he would very obviously put them all out of work. Yeah. Well, it's good. Yeah, it's a good question. I guess that it's somebody to look up to. Yeah. Somebody who does your job heroically. He brings he brings a dignity to the to the job maybe. And that, they're, they're they're not nearly as excited to see the uh, electric saw. Yeah, I'm still a little like I don't I don't understand it. I don't understand why we tell these story. I mean, yeah, why why do we tell these stories of technology beating humans? I, I don't know. I mean, it goes back almost to the beginning of the machine age, or even further, right? Frankenstein is is ultimately a story about technology, us not being able to control technology, or, or not wanting to control technology, or I don't know. It's it's you know fairly common 
modern theme. It, what, what's interesting is we're all afraid of it, or most of us are afraid of it, and yet we all happily adopt new technology. It's like we can't, we can't. Back to the addiction thing we talked about with no smoking. Yeah, it's like we can't help ourselves. We know, we know it's going to make us all unemployed. We know. Deep down, I think we all know our lives are less rich than they would be if we weren't plugged in all the time, and yet we can't stay away from it. So we 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 admire somebody like Paul Bunyan for going up against it, and yet you would you you and I would both buy the steam saw, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. All right. Well, that way to way to draw it full circle, Michael. That was really good. I, I feel like we should stop right there. I do what I can. <laughs> All right. Next well, month we're talking about 101 Dalmatians, a favorite. Yeah. A f- definite favorite. And yeah. and we we and, enter the age of oh what's is it Xerox animation? Yep. Speaking of technology, we're going we're going right there too. So, so we'll, big we'll t- big shift in the style of of how these cartoons look yeah. due to the technology. Well, and and also so. due to the fact that Sleeping Beauty very nearly bankrupted the company, so they had to they they had to do it more cheaply. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, speaking of, we got a little little a couple previews here. Uh, in oh, which one was it that we watched? Oh, the truth about Mother Goose. We saw. Um, we saw the knights fighting on the bridge, and <laughs> so we'll see them again in uh, in Arthur, right? Sword of the in, Stone. Uh, yeah, Sword of the right. Stone. Yeah, Sword of the Stone. Yeah. So. Yep. And I think they themselves maybe were copied off of, uh, or at least some of the horse was at least copied off of, um, or was copied again for Prince Philip, I think, maybe, and also out of. Um, What's Ichabod Crane? Uh, Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, I think, I think they, I think that's that's all the same animation that keeps getting reused over and over. Yeah, which will, a, which will become a, a major issue in the '60s thing. and '70s, the, the reused right. animation. Yeah, yeah, I could be wrong on that. That may be two different things, but I, I have, I, I feel like all of those are are the are the same animation that's used over and over. So. Um, yeah, so anyway, looking looking forward to discussing that with you, Michael. Um, Michael and I know there are a great number of podcasts out there that you could be spending your time on, so we thank you for choosing us. Uh, we also want to want you to know that Before They Were Live is a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, uh, where you can find new and interesting shows just about every day of the week. We mentioned several of them this episode. Uh, our press liaison is Christian Philippic. Uh, please help us continue this conversation, um, especially if you're upset. <laughs> we don't mind. We'll take it uh, by me emailing us at beforetheywerelive at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter because I'm not a quitter. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm at the alt, uh, at the underscore alt, uh, rather, and Michael is at Michael Farmer. Uh, so for Michael Farmer, I'm Josh Altman Show for reminding you that where there's life, there's hope. Let's hope. <laughs>